of two eyes, huh? Do you understand the game a bit? Yeah, have a look. I'm not saying anything to you in particular because I know you're not too accurate with your reporting. That, that's what okay, you're paid so you're for. Saying it. I should resign. So you're saying I should resign. I think that's you should, your opinion. Yeah. Is that right? That's my opinion. Okay, fine. Are you going to resign then? No, of course I'm not going to resign. I simplify things next time. <laughs> Hello beautiful people, my name is Joey Lynch and welcome to another special edition of the National Curriculum and it's special because I recently sat down with Football Australia Chief Executive James Johnson for a far-reaching chat about a number of important facets of the game on both a footballing and regulatory level here in Australia. I mean, Here at TNC, we are the best footballing podcast in the country with plenty of ticker to keep going through the off-season, but we also pride ourselves on being willing to go in-depth and talk about the stuff that's really important, not just sugary, for the entire Australian footballing ecosystem. And this conversation is an example of that, as myself and Johnson are going to talk through club licensing, Football Australia's pursuit of a domestic transfer system, dispute resolution reforms, attempts to establish a national second division, and a whole lot more. And you will hear that I do try to bring the conversation back to talk about how is this going to affect people at the base level, at the grassroots level. First, though, with Sydney Croatia becoming the first side from outside the A-Leagues to reach the final of the Australia Cup this year, I did ask Johnson at the top about his thoughts on this year's tournament. And quickly also, as a heads up, we did have a few issues with my microphone during the chat itself, but do stick with it because it's a good interview. It's a very exciting time for the Australia Cup, and uh, I think uh, I would say, and a lot of people would agree, that it's been the best Australia Cup uh, of all time. Uh, a competition is really like a, it's a book, it's a good story, a good, uh, a good TV series where you've got a great start, a great end, and you've got great chapters throughout the story, you've got great characters, you've got surprise and suspense. And I think that's what we had in the Australia Cup this year. It started off well. Um, there were great chapters, lots of cup sets, lots of interesting stories along the way, and we think it will end up with a big bang uh, in, in Western Sydney when we have a Western Sydney derby on 1 October. It certainly captured the imaginations of the Australian football public that have been following along with the cup sets storylines. What have you made of the mainstream cut through that it's got? Obviously, it's the first year with the new branding. I know I've had some questions. Oh, what's the Australia Cup? Oh, it's the FFA Cup. Oh, yeah. How are you finding the mainstream cut through? So when you're building a sports brand, whether it's a competition or a team, um, you've got to build the brand first and the mainstream media comes along afterwards. So... Our focus over the past two years, our vision for this competition has really been to, to tinker with it. We changed the calendar, uh, and, and the reason for doing that is we wanted the NPL teams to be more competitive uh, against the A-League teams. We also wanted the Australia Cup to have free air uh, and, and not be played um, at the same time as, as, as the A-League. Um, what that has resulted in is we've seen more surprises, more shock, uh, more cup upsets, and lots of stories that we think um, has cut through on the, on, the, on the mainstream media. And we think that the more of these stories, the more of these seasons we have, will elevate this competition to where it deserves to be. Sydney United ostensibly playing for a place in Asia. If they win the Australia Cup, that was one of the reforms you brought in. An Asia place now goes to the Cup winners. NPL side, I know there's licensing complications. Will they actually get a place in Asia if they beat MacArthur? Yeah, so if Sydney United were to win, um, there is uh, an opportunity for them to compete in Asia in the Asian Football Confederation Cup. Um, and we think uh, they'd do very well in that competition. It would really be a great story. But MacArthur are a great side. But even if they get there on sporting merit, they do need to, to be licensed. 
Um, so there would be a process whereby they would go through that process. Um, I think they can um, uh, get licensed. I think that they can meet the requirements. There would have to be some, some change, but we've got 12 months, if that were the case, to ensure that Sydney United are licensed. And that means they're gonna grow and that would be a good thing for the club, for the competition and for the country. What are some of the things that have to put in place? You used to work at AFC as well. You know, what are some of the regulations that need to meet? I think the main one for Sydney United would be around infrastructure, ensuring that the uh, stadium requirements do meet uh, AFC standards. But these are all achievable. It does require some work and it does require some investment. Um, but we think that they can get there should they win the Australia Cup final on 1 October. Indeed. This talk of licensing, it plays into another area that Football Australia has been making some moves in in recent times, club licensing. What are you doing in that space presently? So we said that we would introduce a, a club licensing system. And I might start with what it is because it's a bit of an ambiguous term, but what it is, it's effectively a, a license that we award that confirms that a club for a specific competition has met Football Australia's requirements. So what we've implemented over the past 12 months is a licensing framework for A-League clubs to enter the A-League or to remain in the A-League but also for A-League clubs to enter into Asian competition. So that's the first part um, of the, the licensing system. We're currently working on a, a second tier framework um, that will um, be, be established as a second tier comes in, and also a framework for the NPLs that the member federations who are the competition administrators um, will, will set. Ours will be a framework, it will be principle-based, but then the competition administrators at the NPL level will need to put the details and specifics around what those licensing criterias are. So um, the top end of, of the pyramid, the, the, the A-League clubs, um, that framework is in place. They've gone through the process for the first time over the past three or four months. So for the first time in, in 2022, um, clubs will be licensed. Uh, it, is, it is a soft implementation this year because we want to get the clubs used to these processes because they haven't done it before. Uh, and what we can say is that there'll be 12 clubs that are all licensed to participate in the A-League and also AFC competitions this year. There may be some reprimands um, uh, that are put in place because there are sanctions that are available uh, to Football Australia to ensure that the clubs keep meeting the standards that are set by Football Australia. What sort of sanctions? Financial, competition access sort of sanctions? What are we talking about? It, it depends what, what uh, criteria is not met, but um, at the moment it's just a reprimand for this year. Um, the other sanctions that are available uh, in the licensing system in future years would be financial, could be penalties, um, or worst case scenario would, would, would be expulsion. But that's the, uh, that's the atomic bomb and uh, let's hope we never get there. Yeah. These changes to licensing frameworks, obviously the A-Leagues wouldn't really affect it, but materially these changes that you're making, will they be felt by the vast majority of Australian participants? Will somebody at a community or an NPL level, level will they benefit from it? Better access, cheaper to play football, that kind of thing? Yeah, if we, if, we, if we zoom out and talk about what the objective of the licensing system is, on one hand it is to set standards um, and it's used as a compliance and a monitoring tool um, throughout a, a country. It's also used as a, as a development tool. So it's a strategic um, uh, framework that clubs both in the A-League and also outside of the A-League can look at when they're setting their specific club um, strategies. It's all around growth. Um, if a club outside of the A-League 
wants to be as good as a second tier club or an A-league club, then they'll know what sort of standards they've got to meet uh, in order to grow the club in the right area. So this is the other element of club licensing. And if we even zoom further out and we say, well, what are we really doing with licensing? Yes, there's compliance. Yes, there's development. But ultimately, we want a connected uh, football pyramid um, where everyone is playing under the same uh, framework, the same umbrella, and uh, we know what standards uh, uh, clubs are meeting, both at the NPL level, the future second tier level, and also the A-League level. Talk about on an, a, on an NPL level, you'll put in place the principles and the framework and the member federations will be in charge of, I guess, creating a bespoke solution for their jurisdictions. How much influence will you have on that process? Say a member federation doesn't want to institute those sort of rules. Are you able to uh, make them in, install those? What sort of power do you have in that space? So with a club licensing framework, and it's no different if you're at FIFA or if you're at UEFA, um, and, and you're trying to implement it at the national level, um, you've, you always have tension between what is a uniform standard and what is specific. And at the NPL level, we'll see that tension play out. And we've got to strike a balance between what's uniform between Sydney and Darwin and what's specific. And what we do know is that we're dealing in different markets and the competitions in Brisbane, in Sydney, in Canberra, in Perth and Darwin do look different. Um, so there will be a level of uniformity that the member federations will need uh, to, to um, implement in terms of criteria. But there'll also be some leeway where the member federations who operate in, in different markets can introduce specific criteria um, that address specific situations in their specific markets. On the subject of member federations, obviously they are built into the Football Australia Constitution. At the same time, there's been a lot of talk about their place in an evolving football ecosystem. It talks about duplication of resources, efficiency. What do you see as the future of member federations here in Australia? So in the 11 principles, we talked about uh, a concept called One Football, and it's a process that we're working through very collaboratively with, with the member federations at the moment. There's strong appetite, not just by Football Australia, but also from the member federations themselves. And we're working through uh, a digital project at the moment, which is a future registration system for FA and the member federations for participants. And we're working through some administration changes just recently, we announced that there's a, a, a national dispute resolution chamber that the uh, the scope has been brought in to include professional players outside of the A-League, which means cases that were once heard um, at a state level can now be uh, heard at a national level, which starts to sort out um, some of those efficiencies. We're looking at um, FA taking some more responsibility in refereeing, so it takes a bit of a load off some of the member federations. And we've also got some other administration changes that uh, we'll be making in conjunction with the member federations as well. We've also agreed for the first time a one football strategy. So we've got an aligned strategy between FA and the member federations that we can work to. And that really just ensures that throughout the whole pyramid, we're on the same page, we're talking the same language and we're focused um, on, on, on the right thing. So a one, the one football project is is in motion, it's happening. There's not really an end date because it's a continual process that we've got to go through. And what I can say is a good, good appetite from both FA and the member federations in doing so. And I guess the overarching objective of all of these changes, these new initiatives, these finding efficiencies is to improve the experience for participants, be it through better access, more referees, cheaper costs, and just improve 
the experience for let's face it, 98% of participants that don't play elite football. There's lots of objectives. So it's, it's to have a more streamlined uh, governance and administration structure. Um, it is to reduce costs in part of the games because there is an overlap um, in, in administrative costs. So there are lots of objectives and it's something that um, I think the full game, whether you're a participant, whether you're an administrator or a club, will benefit from. You touched on the dispute resolution changes that you've made there. Obviously, that's been in place for a while now at an A-Leagues level and a national team's level, but as you mentioned, expanding it down now to professionals playing in the NPL. Could you maybe give a brief oversight for those not familiar with the dispute resolution process, what that looks like, and then maybe what sort of teeth will this body have at an NPL level? So a national dispute resolution chamber is a, is a key part of a transfer system. It's a part of a transfer system. And what we saw earlier this year is we've removed the transfer fee cap outside of the A-League, which means that uh, there's transfer fees that are payable for clubs outside of the A-League and for players that move into the A-League. So that's something new. What we've seen as a consequence of that decision is there's more professional players. So we're seeing professional contracts um, being signed uh, much more regularly in, in markets like Brisbane, and Melbourne, for example, and the more professional contracts that there are, the more disputes that arise, such as part and parcel um, of professional contract growth. So what the National Dispute Resolution Chamber does is it results or resolves uh, contractual disputes between players and clubs. In the past, this has only been available to players that are playing in the A-League. The change that we've recently um, made now allows players from outside of the league outside of the A-League, in that the NPL's players who sign professional contracts to access um, this body. That's the first major change. The second is there's a structural change. So we appoint the chair, and we've appointed James Kitching, who's the former uh, director of regulatory at FIFA. He's very experienced in this area, um, and he's a, a real global expert in this field. So we're very happy to have JK uh, on board. He understands the nuances in, in these disputes. And then secondly, um, in the past, Football Australia has appointed the club representatives, the arbitrator list um, for the clubs because there's equal number of representatives between clubs and players and then a chair. But we've shifted that responsibility to the APL clubs, um, which, which helps us align and implement better the, uh, the unbundling agreement. So we appoint the chair, the players union appoint the player arbitrators, and the clubs, the APL, appoint the club arbitrators. And then you have a panel consisting of a chair, a club representative, and a player that resolve a contractual dispute between a professional player and a club. So I remember in a previous interview that we did, you talked about wanting to help the NPLs professionalise more professional contracts, sort of like get rid of some of the brown paper bag payments that some players receive so they can, so clubs, because clubs would have the um, inducement maybe a transfer fee if they're on a pro contract, and this is now the next step, protecting players that if they sign a professional contract, they'll be protected and they'll be able to make sure that they are their rights and their payments and all that are processed properly. Yeah, that's right, and it, it, it goes both ways. So it protects the club uh, in case the player breaches the contract, and it protects the player in case the club breaches the contract. And ultimately, in a professional sport environment, you need contractual stability between the player and the club to ensure that the whole system works. So this is an avenue that is available to the many more professional players that we now um, have in Australian football as a result of many of the waves of transfer system reform that we're bringing in. 
Have you increased resources to this body as a result of this? Because I mean, it's gone from say 12 A-Leagues clubs and the national teams and now all of a sudden hundreds of NPL clubs can suddenly access this as well if they're all if you're suddenly getting a deluge of complaints create a bit of a backlog yeah so we'll continue to upscale our, our resourcing something we have done over the past 12 months is we've set up a professional football uh, unit within the business and um, we brought in Natalie Lutz who, who also works on transfer system matters in, in a broad sense and also on club licensing as well. So we do have a unit that's specifically focused on professional football, and this unit will be the unit that acts as the secretariat or the administrative body of the National Dispute Resolution Chamber panel, um, of which the chair and the uh, club and player representative will oversee. You mentioned the domestic transfer system that you're looking to introduce. Basically, a lot of this plays into a club licensing, the dispute resolutions, What's the current status of your efforts to introduce a domestic transfer system into Australian football? So all these mechanisms are all connected, club licensing, domestic match calendar, transfer system. They're all part of the same objective to create a, a better functioning and connected pyramid of, of football. As far as the transfer system comes, we, it's a really big area. Um, it's not just about a transfer fee being paid between cl two clubs. That's a very narrow way to look at the system. It's really a system that governs the movement um, between different levels of professional football in a country. Um, and the movement occurs in registration windows and, and often you're debating about who owns the rights, the registration rights of the player. Is it a permanent transfer? Is it a loan? So there's a, a big ecosystem when we talk about a transfer system. We've introduced this in waves. So if we go back to last year, um, we introduced aligned registration periods which is the period by which professional players can be transferred within. Um, we then remove the transfer fee cap for clubs outside of the A-League. Um, we've then introduced a third wave, which was uh, loan changes. So clubs um, uh, who sign players on longer contracts can now loan players to other clubs more freely. We've just introduced the National Dispute Resolution Chamber. So there's four waves of transfer system reform that are uh, in place now. Where we're going in the, in, in the coming months is we will start the conversation about agent regulations, so a set of rules that uh, govern the relationship between a player and an agent. And we need to talk about agents because they're a really important part of the ecosystem and they have a lot of influence over where our young players uh, are going. So it'll be the next cab off the rank and the other cab off the rank that will come in soon will be training compensation. And, and when we talk about training compensation, um, it is a player, it's a payment to a club that has trained a player for a specific amount of time. And what we're wanting to get out is that there is an annual payment for every year that a club trains a player when the player signs his first professional contract. All of these different waves that we're going through, all these different stages of introducing a transfer system, Come the end point, come the end goal, what do you see as, what benefits will Australian football reap from this in your opinion? Or what's the overall purpose of a domestic transfer system in your eyes? I would say we're halfway through the process of implementing a domestic transfer system. We've done four waves, I've just talked about two more waves. Uh, and then we, at some point we need to talk about transfer fees payable between clubs within the A-League. But that's something that we've got to work through both the APL and the PFA on. What we're really talking about, if we cut through everything and talk about what the purpose is, 
it's twofold. One is sporting. It's about incentivizing clubs to invest more in, in player development. It's, it's about incentivizing clubs to play young players more often because when young players are playing more match minutes, um, the value of the player increases and also the quality of the player increases. So there is an incentive through the system to have clubs focus on youth development. On the flip side, it's really opening up the market economically. Um, the, the more open market we have, um, the more freedom you give to clubs uh, around the signing and the movement of players, the more money that is created and the bigger economical system um, that you create. So it, the purpose is twofold. It's sporting, let's develop players, and it's economical, let's make more money for Australian football. Mentions discussions there with the PFA and the APL, and they have had at times they've had their own views on the introduction of a domestic transfer system and fees between A leagues clubs. And I think even you mentioned training compensation there as one of the next steps that will inevitably involve, especially A leagues clubs. I imagine. What's the current status of your discussions and talks with? the Australian Professional Leagues and Professional Footballers Australia. It's very, it's very good, actually. It's very positive, um, uh, the discussions with both the APL and also the PFA. We just need to um, be clear about what we're talking about. When, when we talk about a transfer system, we're talking about the broad system from um, transfer fee caps in the NPL to loan systems to registration windows to NDRCs to agent regulations. We're not just talking about a transfer fee payable between two A-League clubs. But that's a conversation that we're going to have with both the APL and the PFA. Um, there's a lot of logic, in my view, around um, having that system in play. But of course, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the salary cap that exists at the moment. Um, but it's not an area, and I'm talking about the transfer fee payable within the A-League that we would impose unilaterally. It's an area that we need to explore further, we need to analyze further, and we need to bring both the APL and the PFA on board for that part of the transfer system discussion. These steps that you're taking, you mentioned a whole bunch of stuff around the domestic transfer system and unrelated to the A-Leagues, the licensing. I imagine all of these steps and all of these things are being introduced and with one eye to the introduction of a second tier so that it doesn't, the second tier doesn't exist yet, but you can easily add these things to a second tier when it comes in? Yeah, they're all helpful and they set a framework that is, uh, that is, that is ripe for a second tier to be introduced. Um, so this will help. It's not the only reason. Even if we didn't have a second tier uh, objective here, we would be doing transfer systems and club licensing systems and domestic match calendar systems anyway. But these mechanisms do create the right environment for a second team to be established and to successfully um, kick off in. I imagine something like the club licensing, if you've set license requirements for an A-Leagues teams versus an NPL team, it's pretty easy to find a, a comfortable middle ground and say, all right, pretty easy to figure out what a second tier's licensing regulations will look like based on those two factors. I think that's a really good point because um, when we introduce a second tier, it, it's not uh, an interstate NPL, right? There's an A-League and we know what the standards are at the A-League. There is the NPL, and there needs to be a space in between the A-League and the NPL um, where, where clubs need to get to in order to compete at that level. And something I think we haven't done well as a sport in our history is we haven't focused enough on club development. So really, if we strip back what we're trying to do with the second tier, there's a lot of objectives, but one is 
We want to um, help clubs grow, help clubs develop, and really incentivize them to grow. And uh, when we see situations like Sydney United playing in the Australia Cup final, the objective's the same because it's great for the club. It means they're going to grow, and it means that clubs at that level are going to be excited to play, in this case, in the Australia Cup next year. National second tier, it's been a long time that you've been working on this. You've recently uh, gone on a road show, taking what you described to me as detailed financial work and showing that to the clubs. And I don't know, speaking to some people at clubs, they've been impressed with the amount of information that you've presented. What's the current status of your efforts to introduce a national second tier? And do you still have existing uh, NPL clubs and the like still very keen to take part in this process? It, it's it's been a long process and it is a complicated process. It's not uh, an easy task to set up a new competition because you've got to um, have a, the requisite number of clubs that are ready to go and they've got to be ready to go. I wanted to highlight that. Um, you also need to understand and, and figure out how the relationship works um, with the NPL but also with, with the A-League as well. So we've moved the conversation from a philosophical conversation, which is where we were 18 months ago. We support a second tier. We want to have a second tier, one day we'll have one. We've moved uh, to, to a, a new stage recently where we uh, engaged expertise to help us put together a very detailed financial plan. So FA and also potential clubs that would participate in this uh, competition really understood and felt and smelt um, what it would take financially and where they'd need to grow in order to meet the standards. So that process has taken place very detailed document. We've spoken directly to potential clubs um, who have had input into that document. So we know now um, the, the types of clubs and the level of interest um, that there is. What I can say is there is sufficient interest um, at a level that I think I would be comfortable with setting up a second tier as a result of the roadshow um, that you just described. Where we go forward to here though is the next stage in this process and that is the EOI uh, stage. So um, our people right now are preparing EOI documents that will include what sort of standards the clubs will need to meet, whether it be stadia, financial or governance, in order to meet um, the, the, the standards that we would require to participate in that competition. We're moving into that next stage right now and we would expect the EOI to be set up and finalized by the middle of 2023 middle of 2023 so if you're setting up an eoi process does that mean you've settled on a model of what the second tier is going to look like we've got some tinkering still to do um, about what the model and the start date would look like we've got um, some ideas that are pretty well defined now we're not ready to announce what they look like yet but we will be soon have you are you able to share models that you've potentially ruled out that we the second tier will not look like um we're not able to rule out uh, any model at this point, but we're looking at models that we think can uh, be set up, can be established. And we also think the model that we'll come up with will be um, very well received by the Australian football community. So you say ex, uh, EOI is middle of 2023. Is that, so is that the start date? No, I would say by the, by the middle of 2023, I would expect that we know by that point... So they're all in at that point. We will know who will be in the second tier 
and who will participate in the first edition of the second TBI medal 2023. We're very excited, Joey, it's going to happen. During the process, there was a rumour going around of clubs walking away when you presented them with the figures that were associated with taking part in the national second tier and that they took one look at them and left. Did that happen? No, that didn't happen. But what, what I can say is the whole purpose of doing real numbers that stack up and count up um, is that we need to be real about these conversations. And there are clubs now that weren't as interested in participating when they see what it really takes. But what I can tell you is that is absolutely enough clubs that are willing to do what it takes and pay what it takes to be playing in the second tier in Australian football. So when do you anticipate putting out those EOIs and inviting people to send them in? As soon as they're ready and they're being drafted at the moment. They're being drafted at the moment, right? So regarding timing, does that rule, does middle of 2023, does that rule out a summer competition launching at the end of 2023? Does that mean we're looking at winter 2024? What's the current thinking on that front? It doesn't rule it out, but the, the first thing for us is not so much the speed of the start of the season, it's getting the, the calendar right. And it, for me, it's the most strategic discussion. Is it a summer competition or is it a winter competition? And that's something that we haven't settled on yet. You know my preference because I've talked about it before. I see it as a winter competition, um, but that's something that we still have to test because it's not the, not the view of everyone and there are different views on whether it's a summer and a winter competition, but um, we'll be addressing that very soon. Will you be allowing A-League sides to send in EOIs for their A-League youth competitions as part of the national second tier? We'll have uh, objectives, and one of the objectives that we'll have is we want to see uh, clubs that have a, a historical importance uh, to Australian football. We want to see clubs that are financially secure and we don't have to worry about um, them not being able to pay bills. We want to see clubs um, that are interested um, in, in, in moving into a second tier and moving out of, say, the NPL. We want to see clubs that are interested in player development. So most of our objectives, um, should they have been met, um, it will place any club in a position to, to, um, to enter the second tier competition. One of the things that I get whenever I talk about the second division, one of the questions I get, I get tweets sent to me about it, is that NSD clubs, a lot of people say, well, that these NSD clubs just hike up their junior fees to help pay for the national second tier. Will you be taking steps as part of this process to guarantee that clubs don't do that? There will not be an increase in registration fees um, if, if that's what it takes for clubs to enter a second tier. Our clubs need to develop business models. They need to go through business transformation where they have um, different and a, and a broad uh, range of revenue streams from broadcast money to uh, sponsorship to commercial revenue and also revenue through the player transfer system that we're introducing. So um, it is not going to be an increase to registration fees. We will make sure of that. Uh, Ernie Merritt, the new Chief Football Officer, you've brought in. What is his day-to-day remit? Is he involved in this process? Ernie the Disruptor is... Uh... <laughs> I wanted to ask about that afterwards. <laughs> Look, uh, we, we promised uh, in March this year that we would appoint a Chief Football Officer. We went through a, a, a very uh, detailed process. We looked... Uh, both abroad and also domestically, and we're very happy with landing on Ernie. He's a right cultural fit for the organisation. We're a very football-centred uh, organisation now, um, and, and Ernie just has football running through his veins. He understands the game both locally and globally. He's been a coach at, at, at the A-League level. He's nurtured players through the VIS. He's coached national teams before. 
So it's really a great mix and really what we're looking for. He's been in office now for about six weeks um, and he's on our executive leadership team. Uh, he's playing a key role in, in all football discussions, whether it's second tier, whether it's transfer system discussions, whether it's policy club licensing. He's across all these areas. He's doing a lot of listening at the moment, um, which I think is the, all the hallmarks of a good executive. He's listening to issues and he's listening to challenges. Um, but pretty soon he'll be putting together a football strategy um, which will cover coaching and pathways. And we've asked him to start looking at coaches and coaches in an area that we've really got to get on top of. Um, so his work at the moment will be to drill down on what coach education looks like, what the coaching curriculum looks like, how we improve um, the, the, the status and the living standards for coaches throughout Australia. You did mention it when I said his name, the disruptor. He was, it was talked about as the chief football officer would be a disruptor and then only merit a man with four decades in the Australian football ecosystem. They seem to be in a bit of a juxtaposition there. Is he a disruptor? Well, What's he disrupting? Well, when, when we announced him, uh, our, our former general counsel sent me a text message and said that he was the, the most sanctioned uh, A-League coach of all time. So he's definitely a, a disruptor in my view. Um, but look, what we mean by disruptive leadership is not someone that's going to go in and bulldoze. That's not what we mean by disruptive. Disruptive is changing the direction of something. And we believe that we need to nurture the next generation of players if we want the Socceroos uh, to compete regularly, but also to compete in uh, the latter stages of major competitions like the World Cup. If we want to develop the next generation of Matildas and we want to win a Women's World Cup one day, we need to focus on football development and do things differently and do things better. And that requires disruptive leadership. So that's really what we're talking about, Joey. And we think in Ernie, we've got that. You mentioned he, Ernie's involved in all of these football discussions. Is he the de facto technical director now? Is he in charge of fostering the style of football that Australia wants to play? Yeah, so a chief football officer is it's, it's a technical director with teeth. So um, Ernie does oversee the, the traditional technical areas, coaching, pathways, schools. These are all um, in, in any technical director's uh, uh, job scope. Um, what we wanted in this role was, was for someone to also be across and help support me with some of the structural changes that we've talked about, second tier competitions, transfer systems, policy uh, around playing younger Australian players more often in competition, club licensing, domestic match calendars. So it's a much broader remit, um, and, and that's why we call the Chief Football Officer. One of the most important footballing decisions facing Australian football very soon is going to be the Socceroos coaching job. Graham Arnold's contract ends after the World Cup, regardless if the decision is made to offer him an extension or somebody bringing somebody new, someone's gonna to have to make that decision is that someone going to be Ernie Merrick or is he going to lead that decision-making process? I want to take the emphasis off Arnie and the specific coach. I mean, right now, Arnie, Arnie's doing a fantastic job, qualified for a World Cup. Um, the September window is going to be fantastic. It's a centenary match against New Zealand. We've got the World Cup. We've got a tough group. So the focus is on the here and now with the Socceroos. But yes, when there is the appointment of national team coaches, uh, Ernie Merrick, as our chief football officer, will play a very central and key role through those processes. Is Ernie also in charge of reviewing national team performance throughout the four-year cycle and reviewing the performance of the coaches at the helm of those teams? 
Ernie would be part of that process, but what we've done here is we've uh, appointed a performance director and a chief football officer. And the rationale behind that is a performance director is really about the performance. It's a short-term focus. It's about how do we ensure that the national teams are competing at their best tomorrow. That's the focus of a performance director. The chief football officer, on the other hand, has a slightly different role. He takes a longer view of player development. His KPI is around how do we develop players for the next five or 10 years. And often uh, in strategic football discussions, you'll have tension around what's good for football tomorrow and what's good for football in five or 10 years. And that's why we've split those roles. And both of those roles need to be involved uh, in the recruitment and, and reviews of, of coaches. Do they both report to you? They both report to me, that's correct, yes. Obviously, in the recent times, there's also been the performances of the Matildas and the results of the Matildas. Have you had discussions about Tony Gustafsson? Does Tony Gustafsson still retain your confidence as coach of the Matildas? Football Australia did a uh, went through a process about two and a half years ago and there was a review done called the Smith Gander Review and, and we've since uh, implemented that report step by step. So there are ongoing reviews of all our, our, our national teams, our coaches, the culture of our teams. So this is an ongoing process. It's not a surprise. We do it every single window. Um, we get feedback. We have different channels from the players, from the coaches, and it's designed to ensure that we're open. We can have tough discussions about how we ultimately improve the program. This is a normal process at Football Australia here today in 2022. Have you completed that process for the Canada series? We're in the process of completing that process for the Canada series. And Tony Gustafsson will will still be in charge of the Matildas heading into the next we, international window? Of course Tony will be in charge uh, in, in, in October. Look, we're, we're not focused on the windows for friendly matches. Our goal is to ensure that by 2023 in July, when the Matildas kick off in Sydney, and we'll find out who that opposition team will be on uh, the 22nd of October, um, that they're at their peak and they're at their strongest and they're in the best position following the most difficult schedule we could put in front of them so that they can go as deep and as far into the World Cup on home soil as possible. So your discussions with Tony, your discussions with the Chief Football Officer, the Performance Director, everyone here, you confident that Matildas can still win the World Cup next year? We're confident that the Matildas will be at their peak competing at their best and will go as deep into the tournament as possible.